And open your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 9. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 9. If you would stand with me and let us pray and ask God's blessing upon the, the reading and the preaching of the gospel this morning. Let us pray together. Now, blessed God, we come asking for your blessing. Lord, we come asking that you would continue to reveal to us what the precious gospel really is, what it really means to be a Christian, what the cost of that gospel is, and Lord, how precious it ought to be to all who proclaim the name of Christ. Come and, Lord, bless us this morning as we ponder and consider what Jesus asked the Pharisees. Come and open our hearts and our minds to understand it, that we might, Lord, be real and true Christians And we might ponder our ways, that we might certainly seek your face and your blessed mercies. And bless everyone here, Lord, no matter the age, no matter the the, uh, position we have in, in this life, no matter what... Uh, how strong of, of the, the, the Christian faith is in our homes. Come and cause each one of us to consider what Jesus says in this text. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, brothers and sisters, direct your attention to verse 12 and 13. And listen to these two verses. But when Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. And I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. As a broad introduction to our study, we have been looking at various passages of Scripture, passages that I think that most of us are very familiar with, Uh, passages that we probably use at one time or another, or at least here used at one time or another. And hopefully what we have learned as we've looked at these various text of scripture we've learned something about the gospel or we've we've gotten a fresh perspective on its content on what it requires i mean just to think of some of the sermons we've preached remember we've already looked at the counting the cost and i keep bringing this up because i want to set this before your mind every lord's day as we look at this study We looked at the cost of the gospel. We looked at counting the cost. We looked at what God requires of us and that we must truly calculate being a Christian, being a disciple of Jesus Christ, that it requires us to calculate its costliness. Secondly, we looked at what appeared to be a contradiction. Woe to you, Corzin. Bethsaida, but yet come all who are weary and heavy laden. We looked at the double-edged nature of the gospel. 
And in there we were challenged, weren't we, about the messages we hear all around us. Typically, it's just a message about love, 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 love. And yet our Lord Jesus, who is the embodiment of love, preached a two-sided gospel. Woe to you who reject me. And yet come, all who are weary and heavy laden. Equal forces, woe to you, judgment, and yet salvation. We noticed and recognized in another passage of Scripture that the Lord Jesus causes us to consider the value of our own soul, right? Consider what you would trade. What would you trade? What would you give? Up for what would you give up for your soul? And he taught us that the whole world is not worthy of one soul. The whole world is not worthy of one soul. And yet so many people have traded their souls for the world. Last week we looked at the, the path of life. And how narrow it it is. How confined it is. It's hard to find and it's hard to, to walk. And yet, Christ said very clearly and plainly that that's the entrance and path that leads to life. And few are they that find. This morning, we're going to consider what Christianity really is. We're going to consider the thought and the idea of what a Christian really is and what does a Christian look like. You'll notice in your bulletin a sort of profound title to the message this morning, God versus the Righteous. That sounds odd. It sounds strange. I mean, because typically we equate righteous people with God. And yet there is in our text of Scripture, and what we're going to look at this morning, is there is a righteousness that God hates. There is a righteousness that God opposes. There is a form of righteousness that Christ cares nothing about. And I want you to listen for it this morning. I want you to listen closely to the message this morning. I want you to understand the importance of of what it really means. What does the gospel really mean? Because I beg you to think on this. I think many, many, many of the problems we have, not only in our churches, and when I say our churches, I mean all all of those true Christian churches, the problem we have in a culture that at at one time was so saturated with biblical, fervent preaching of the gospel, but yet now we are the children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren of men and women and people that don't even know what the gospel is anymore. We don't even know what it is anymore. We don't even really know what it means to be a Christian. And we don't even know what it means to to say I'm a Christian and what that should look like. And hopefully these messages have helped us sort some of that out. 
I mean, I could go off on so many tangents, and I'm subject to. But I'm really trying to discipline myself. I don't want it to be considered that all I do and I preach is consider the negative. But where would I leave you if I didn't point some of these things out where you could make application? You see, we're just not to theorize Scripture. We're not just to theoretically think about it. We're not just to be Christians theoretically, are we? We're not just to ponder the gospel theoretically. Shouldn't it have practicality? Shouldn't it have a true relevance in our lives? Shouldn't it make an impact, an impact upon the way we live and the things we do? And what we learn in some of these messages is absolutely it should. And, well, quite frankly, it does. It does. The question is whether or not these things are true of us or not. So we're going to look at this passage closely and we're going to begin to ponder what Jesus says here in these two verses. Well, let's look at the text itself. In this text, we see the opposition of Jesus Christ to a complaint. Now let's look at the context. Look at um, verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he was was going about healing people. And we see in that, that healing ministry of Christ, Matthew is drawing our attention to the book of Isaiah, the Old Testament. Particularly Isaiah 53, because in Isaiah 53 it was a prophesying of what Jesus was going to do when he came. He was going to heal sinners. And so Jesus is going about healing. In fact, if you go all the way back over to Matthew chapter 8, you're going to see just a list of miracles Jesus performs in healing and raising some from the dead. So this is sort of the culmination of that, if you will. It says, when Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting as a tax collect, sitting in the tax collector's booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. Now, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Now, go and learn what this means I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So we see the context that Jesus has been going around. He's been been performing miracles. He's been healing those that have been known for being lame, blind, um, uh, unable to heal themselves. And you can read the parallel text to this in Mark 2 
and Luke 5. You can read the parallel. The, uh, the other gospels parallel this account and give a little bit more light. We're not, going, we're not going there. You go there later on. Jesus has been going around performing miracles. He's been healing and raising some from the dead. And it has caused, a, it, it's gained a lot of attention. And you can imagine. People are talking. People are talking. People are talking about this teacher. People are talking about this prophet, this new rabbi, the one who teaches like no other. Remember how the gospel of Matthew talks about Jesus in the end of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7, verse 28. It says, when Jesus had finished these words, the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. That's important because what Matthew is letting us know is that Jesus comes and he teaches in a way that none of the religious teachers were teaching. He has penetrated their hearts. He's not just teaching some rules to follow. That's what the whole Sermon on the Mount is all about. You've heard it said this, but I tell you, if you even hate your brother, you're a murderer. I mean, Jesus pierces the external of man and goes straight into the heart to deal with the desires themselves. The religious teachers didn't do that. The scribes didn't do that sort of thing. They taught a religion of morality. I think you might see where we're going, don't you? Jesus is become sort of famous. They're talking about him. He goes up to the to the tax booth, and there Matthew was sitting, and he begins to talk to Matthew, who is Levi, who has the name Levi in the other gospels. Now this is the party. This is, this is how we need to understand and identify the text that we're dealing with. And what does Jesus do? It says that Jesus, uh, Matthew sitting in a tax collector, and Jesus said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Now I don't think we should understand that as meaning Matthew never met this guy before, didn't know who he is, didn't know who Jesus was. No, Matthew had heard about Jesus. Matthew had heard about these miracles. He may have even witnessed some of his um, miracle working. And so when Jesus invited him to follow him, what does Matthew do? He leaves his station and he follows him. There's a context there. The whole gospel sets it up where Jesus is going about and performing these miracles. Staggers Matthew's mind because what is Matthew? Well, Matthew is a publican. The text brings out he's sitting in the tax collector's booth. What's the problem with that? Well, first of all, publicans, tax collectors were hated by the Jews. Matthew was a Jew. But he was considered a traitor to his own people. See, the Jews couldn't stand those Jews who worked for the Roman Empire. They viewed them as traitors. They viewed them as uh, blasphemers. I mean, they are working with the enemy. 
And not only are they working with the enemy, they're doing so, they're profiting from it. Because the tax collectors, as long as they um, collected what Rome required, they were good. But so often, what do corrupt collectors of money do? They collect more than what is required, and they were filling their own pockets with the money, the hard-earned money off of their own brethren, off their own uh, uh, you know, compatriots, if you will. And they were getting rich. They were known for being wealthy. When others were struggling to make ends meet, buying groceries and making a living, the publicans were living it up. And they were living it up because they were robbing their own neighbors out with their taxes. And so the Jewish people hated the tax collector. No love lost there. But that's who Matthew was. He was a publican and he was despised by his own neighbors. Well, see, then you have the other parties. You have not only Matthew who's a publican, but he has friends. And now who's going to be the friend of a hated person in society? It's not going to be the righteous. It's going to be those notorious sinners. Notice what the text goes on to tell us. It says in verse 10, And it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors... And sinners came. Many times, you know, they had to hang out together because no one wanted to be their friend. So they only had a society of tax collectors. I mean, you know, they didn't really have the option of inviting others to supper or to a party because nobody wanted to be their friend. Because by being their friend would mean that their neighbors would turn against them. So he has nothing but tax collectors. And I want you to see the word sinner there. Well, what that word means is notoriously sinful. These were not good people. You know, we talk in, we talk in terms of good and bad. He or she is good. They are bad. And what we mean by bad is so bad you can't bear to be around them. Notoriously bad, sinfully bad, like a prostitution, a drug dealer, drug user, murderers, you know, villains, thugs, corruption. They're bad. All they care about is violence and stealing and all of these other things. And we're good. Good people and bad people. And that's important to the text for our thinking. We need to think like this because this is something that Jesus is really going to counter and I think destroy if we listen closely enough. His associates were other tax collectors and notorious sinners. And I want you to think about how you qualify people. How many, you know, what are the kinds of people you say are bad? What are the kind of people you think are good? That's important. If they live in a certain kind of house, they're good. Okay? If they have a certain kind of job, they're good. 
They go to college. They're good. They go to church. They are good. I want you to think about this. If they don't go to church, they're not so good. But they cuss a lot. They're a bad influence. And I could go on. I hope you'll pick that up and take it to its conclusion. Well, we see that not only we have Matthew and Matthew's associates, but there's also the Pharisees. There's the scribes that are at this gathering, this celebration from the context itself. Jesus has called Matthew to himself. He says, follow me. Matthew has now turned to Christ. He's following Jesus. He is, in one sense, he is he's given up tax collecting. He is so enthralled, he is so excited, he is so encouraged about Christ confronting him and Christ calling him to himself that Matthew invites his friends to come and listen to Jesus. And that's the text there. That's what it says. It says when the, that when it happened as Jesus was reclining at the table in the, ho- in the house of who? Matthew. Matthew. He's in a place where no rabbi would have gone. He's in a place that no religious teacher would have ever gone to teach a Bible study because you can't teach bad people religious things. They're too bad for the gospel. They're too far gone for any good to happen in their lives. That was the mindset of this group called the scribes and the Pharisees. And yet Jesus is reclining at the table and we can read the other accounts and glean from it that the Lord Jesus is teaching them. He's talking about, guess what? Sin. There is no better place to talk about sin than with people who know what sin is. Think about it. A prostitute knows she's bad or he's bad. A murderer knows he's guilty. She's guilty. A thief. Now, I know there are exceptions. I know we live in a psychologized society where we can all shuffle off our responsibilities on somebody else. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the core man knows they're guilty. The core man knows that it's wrong to kill people. It's wrong to steal from people. It's wrong to sell drugs these illegal narcotics that put so many people in a bind in their families and society and destroys their life. It's wrong. See, that's the best place to talk about sin is with people who sin. That's what Jesus was doing. Jesus wasn't telling them It's going to be okay. Everything's all right. 
Jesus is talking about sin and they are listening to him because he is now called Matthew to himself. He's the man, he's the one going around performing these miracles. I mean, he, he heals the sick, he raises the dead. We're going to listen to him and now he's called this friend of ours, Matthew, to himself. And Matthew is even beginning immediately to demonstrate change like Zacchaeus did, another tax collector. Who once embraced Jesus Christ, what did he do? He began to give back what he had taken from others fourfold. And Jesus said, Zacchaeus, salvation has truly come to you today. The scribes are here and they're witnessing this gathering and celebration. They're witnessing this discipleship, this teaching take place. And guess what? Are they happy about it? No, they are not. They're not happy that a rabbi, that a teacher with a status that Jesus has garnered over the last few weeks in healing people and raising the dead has now gone in and defiled himself by sitting in a house with sinners, notorious sinners and tax collectors to boot. How dare he? How dare this rabbi? Do such a thing. Now who are these Pharisees that are are watching this and taking note of it and had become offended by it? Well, they are the scribes. They are the scholars of the day. They are the religious teachers. They are the pastors, if you will, of the people. They are the sort of keepers of uh, the law. They are the one to make sure everybody does what they are supposed to do. Right? They're described in the Pharisees. They are looked upon. They are respected. They are the good people of society. They're good folk. They just garner trust because they are so outwardly religious. These are the people that our Lord Jesus was referring to in the, in the Sermon on the Mount when he began, when he's when he was teaching. And he says, listen to this. He says, for I say to you in chapter 5, verse 20, I, for I say to you that unless your righteousness surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. Jesus not only condemns there in that text the righteousness of the Pharisees, He said, and I'll tell you this as well, if you don't surpass their righteousness, you're not going to heaven either. Now you've got to understand something about the Pharisees and scribes. Guess what? They tithed. Oh, they tithed on everything. They didn't round it up or round it down. They didn't say, well, I'll give a little bit... A little bit here, a little bit there, and God's going to be happy because I'm a giver. Because guess what? Over 80% of Christians going to church doesn't tithe anyway. The whole church of Christ in America is supported by less than 10% of the people going there. Okay? And we wonder why churches can't do much when it takes money to actually minister to, well, the people in it and even to the culture and society, right? You know, um, just as a note, side note, it's just like the things, the expenses here, it costs money to put stuff on Sermon Audio. That stuff's not free. Yeah, but I want to encourage you, guess what? 
You know, last month we had over 2,000 downloads. Small church with a large impact. Okay. The Pharisees were the religious teachers of the day. They were the scholars. They were the ones that people looked up to and aspired to. Paul, before he was converted, was a Pharisee. And in fact, Paul says, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I mean, I was the best of the best of the religious crowd. To help you put that in perspective. So we have Levi, we have Matthew's friends, and we have the scribes and the Pharisees. And then, guess what? Well, we have Jesus. We have God. God in the flesh. The second person of the blessed trinity is there. And what does Jesus do? The second person of the blessed trinity. What does he do when he hears the Pharisees complaining to his disciples. He corrects them. Well, notice, notice the text, and verse 11, and when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, they're talking to Jesus' disciples and not to Jesus himself, he says, why does your teacher, why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? I mean, they point out who's there. They like, why are they teaching? Why does he eat with these traitors? These notorious, these prostitutes, these drunkards, drug users, these defiled people. You might think that they've got an argument here. You know, the Pharisees could point out, well, look, your own teachers said on the Sermon on the Mount, we heard him say, right? Verse 6, don't give what is holy to dogs. And don't throw your pearl to swine or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. They said, look, even your own Lord, even your own master said, you can't just give the gospel to anybody. Why is he eating here? I want to give you a good reason for that. I want to show you there's not a contradiction in what Jesus preached and what he practiced. When Jesus says don't give what is holy to dogs and don't throw your pearls to swine, what he means is you can't force people to listen to the gospel. Okay? There are those who love their sin. There are those who are notorious about their sin. There are those who love to be pagans. There are those who love to be irreligious. Guess what? Don't spend your time, waste your time on that. Guess why these sinners are here? My friend Matthew told me I needed to come. My friend Matthew says there's something special about this Jesus. My friend Matthew says that it's changing his life. And I want to come and listen to the man that's changed my friend. I'm here to learn and ponder and consider these things. You see, these weren't dogs and pigs. Now, they were dogs and pigs in the eyes of whom? The Pharisees, the righteous, the good folk. You see, brothers and sisters, I don't want you to ever have... Someone in your home sitting at your table that's going to spit in your food and tell you to take this gospel and do profane things with it. But guess what? There's that other person that's defiled that'll come and sit at your table and listen to what you have to say. I hope they're invited. 
There's a difference. You need to grow in your discernment and wisdom so that you know the difference. Okay? Well, the Lord confronts these righteous scribes and Pharisees. And the complaint was his association with these tax collectors and sinners. Now, what does Jesus do and how does Jesus oppose this complaint? Well, I think there are in this opposition to this complaint that's being offered by the scribes to his disciples... I think we can find in the text itself three corrections. Three corrections. And I think it's important that we look at each one of these corrections as we examine what's going on here so that we too can figure out what is a real Christian. What is the true Christian about and well, what do they look like? Well, first of all, he corrects their view of themselves. Now, this is very important. I've been talking about it since I started preaching. He corrects their own view of who they are. Notice how he does this. He does this with a question. He does this with a question. Look at verse 12. And when Jesus heard the complaint, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. It's not those who are healthy. That need a physician, but those who are sick. Now, Jesus is a phenomenal and excellent teacher. And he proves this once again to us by answering the complaint with a probing question. You know what questions are good for? Questions are good for causing us to think. Think about what I'm asking you. In relationship to your complaint. Now what's the complaint? They were offended. They were the the righteous. The righteous were offended that Christ as a rabbi would sit down and fellowship and teach and entertain sinners and tax collectors. They were offended. Now Jesus corrects them by pointing out that they really don't see their condition the way God sees their condition. They're the good guys. Jesus said, it's not the healthy who needs a physician, but those who are sick. See, I didn't come for you. Now, I want you to really hear what's going on here. There's a correction and a staggering truth. The correction is the sick need a physician. Those who are healthy, and that's what the Greek word actually means. Healthy, complete, strong, right? Vigorous. They don't need a doctor. See, you who have the self-proclaimed righteous the self-proclaimed good folk. See, in your eyes, you're healthy. You don't need a physician. You don't need a savior. See, they were wrong in their estimation of themselves. They didn't see themselves as sick. 
They didn't see themselves as defiled. They didn't see themselves as sinners. They're good people. They tithe. They go to church. They vote for the right people. They support the right charities. They do the things that they are supposed to do in society. They are the good folk of any community. They're not laying in the alleyways. They're not laying in the streets. They're not sleeping under newspapers. They're not buying drugs. They're not fornicators. They're the healthy and well people. I want you to think about how many people who have this view of themselves and completely missing the gospel altogether. And the Bible tells us there is none righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But pastor, I am not as sinful as they are. Therefore, I'm good. You don't understand. You don't understand. What Jesus is saying here, if you are healthy, I did not come for you. I have nothing for you. I have no message for you. I'm not entertaining you. I'm not teaching you. If you're here this morning and you're okay, and you're okay with obeying some external rules and doing a few things and that you're content with and you keep doing repetitively those things because you're so duty-oriented in your life, you never go beyond the morality of your life. You never go beyond the moral hurdle of considering your own nature and the corruption of your own heart. Then Jesus has nothing to say to you. And that ought to stagger all of us. Jesus is correcting them. They were so guilty of traditionalism and formalism. They took pride in all of their outward regiments. The outward regiment had surpassed the inward disposition of the heart and the mind. They, in their heads, were serving God and all of the externals, but in their hearts, they did not love Him. They weren't doing it because they loved Him. They weren't obeying Him because they loved Him. For example, another correction Jesus makes in the Sermon on the Mount on prayer. And notice in verse chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. 
Now notice he says, oh, listen. So when you give to the poor, do not sound the trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, their reward is full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving will be in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And he talks about this ostentatious prayer. Oh, men that fall down on their knees and say all of these eloquent and beautiful prayers. And the reason they pray that way is not because they want to please God. It's because they want men to be pleasing with them. They want to be loved by people. They want to be loved by the people around them. And and you know what Jesus says? They have their reward. That's it. Because guess what? Their heavenly father or the the father of heaven, well, he's not pleased with any of that. I want you to understand, brothers and sisters, there is no gospel message for the person who is well. Do you believe that? Do you see that? Jesus says to them, I have nothing for you because you don't need a physician. Why does he use this term? Why is he using this medical model to help them understand? What's he been going around doing? Well, in chapter 8, he's been healing He's been healing people. He's been raising the dead. He's already proven himself to be the great healer. So guess what he does? He says, who's the physician here? He is. See, that's the context. That's what the brilliance of Matthew's gospel is it's set up that what Jesus is telling them, they get it. Oh, you as the physician have nothing for us. You can't help us. You won't help us because we refuse to see our own need. Helps us define what Christianity is and we can begin to do that even now in our our sermon can't we because brothers and sisters let me tell you something Jesus didn't come for those who are morally sound you may take a lot of pride in obeying the rules but I'm here to tell you if you're not obeying those rules out of a heart that's been consecrated by Jesus Christ from a heart that's been rent in repentance of sin from a heart that realizes there is no good thing that comes from you whatsoever and all that is good that comes from you comes from God Almighty in His Son Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you something. If you're that moral person, Jesus has nothing for you today. And the only way He's going to have something for you is you understand you're a sinner. You're a sinner. The second correction is they not only didn't understand who they really were before God. They didn't understand the Scriptures. What Jesus tells them. He quotes out of the Old Testament in verse 13. uh, After He says, It is not 
those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. And then he quotes from Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Here, what Jesus corrects them on, here are the teachers of the day. Here are the scribes. These are the, these are the religious teachers. These are the ones who are teaching the ways of God, the way to God, and how to live for God. And yet Christ confronts them and corrects them in front of all of these sinners. He says, what well, i tell you what, go study the Bible. Go study the Old Testament. Go study the book of Hosea. And I want you to contemplate and consider. I want you to exegete that passage of Scripture. And I want you to tell me what it means. For me to desire compassion and not sacrifice. This is even what David says in Psalm 51. When he has coming out of his guilt of adultery and murder. And God had restored David. When David repented of his sins and God was restoring him, one of the things that David talked about was God not taking delight in bulls and goats, the sacrifice of bulls and goats. He said, all right, I'll offer a million of them. Now, now let's, let, I want to make thing, I want to make something very clear here. What Jesus is not saying is, oh, y'all never should have offered those sacrifices anyway. Those were if you wanted to or not. That's not what he's saying. No, he demanded sacrifices be made. God demanded that sacrifices in the Old Testament be made. What's the problem? Why would he say in 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 the context? These sacrifices aren't important. I desire mercy and compassion. What's he saying? He said, how? See, Israel was guilty in Hosea of offering sacrifices without a heart of dying to sin. What the sacrifices needed to signify. Their inward heart did not comport with their outward actions. And God hated it. He said, you know, your lips say one thing, but your hearts, well, they are far from me. And Jesus wanted them to go back and study that. He said, listen, you have a lesson to learn here. It's not the rules that you keep that make you righteous. It's the heart that has been crushed by the grace of God. And unless your heart's been crushed by the grace of God, all of your moral givings are trash in the Lord's sight. Trash. But a heart that's been crushed by grace sees the law in a whole different light, doesn't it? It sees the light 
in that while the Lord has prescribed in his mercy for me a way to live that's pleasing in his sight. I've been crushed by grace. I've repented of my sins. I've put my faith in Christ. And now I can walk with a fresh perspective. Not because these rules make me righteous. But because by Christ's blood I've been made righteous. And that's the only thing that can make you righteous, brothers and sisters. You cannot keep enough rules to make yourself righteous. And you can't keep enough rules to make yourself accepting in God's sight. I don't care how much you tithe. I don't care how many times you come to church. I don't care all the good deeds you do. And you ought to be doing all that. But you ought to be doing all of that out of what? Out of a heart of thanksgiving. Out of a heart that has been crushed by the compassion and the mercy of Jesus Christ because because you don't have to teach sinners they're sinful. But the righteous will never accept it. I'm good. If you're here this morning, have you accepted that you are a notorious sinner and defiled in God's sight? Even all you covenant children, God's not saving you because you're in a good home. Because your daddy and mama are good people. God is saving you because he's a compassionate God. He's a merciful God. And he comes for sinners. And he's only going to come. He's only coming for sinners. He corrects their misunderstanding of the Bible because the Old Testament taught clearly that all obedience must be done out of hearts that are consecrated to God first. And that's the same thing today, isn't it? That's why Jesus said, you need to go learn this. You need to go learn what I've already said 100 years ago, 400, 500 years ago. And then there is the third correction that he makes. They misunderstand his presence. They misunderstand themselves. They don't know who they are. They think they're righteous. When he says they are not, well, he says this. It doesn't say they're not righteous. He says, okay, you're righteous. I have nothing for you. That's what he says. It's pretty strong, isn't it? That's pretty strong. Now, they ought to come to the conclusion that, you know what? Let me tell you something. There is more hope for that notoriously sinful person than for a million people who think they're right with God and are not. There is more hope for that miserable sinner in the eyes of Jesus Christ than the thousand who think they're okay because they are steeped in their rules and formalism. More hope. In fact, what Jesus says, they're hopeless. I didn't come for them. They didn't understand His presence. And I've said this several times. Notice Jesus making the case. I didn't come for you. I didn't come for the righteous. Verse 13, but go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. 
Let that stagger you. Here is the Son of God come in the flesh who has demonstrated His divinity, who has demonstrated His love and compassion by showing that He has the power over death. He has the power to call the dead to life again. The dead obey the voice of Jesus. He had the authority to call them from the grave. You got to read Jesus walking in to Jairus' house and they are mourning and they're crying and he looks at his daughter and he says, oh, she's only sleeping and they laugh and they mock Jesus. And then he takes her by the hand and he says, uh, get up. And she rises up. They didn't know who he was talking to. See, they didn't know that they had in their presence the Son of God, this great teacher, the one who is the Word, the eternal Word Himself. They didn't know that it was He who can give life and only He can give life. See, they didn't didn't even understand who was teaching. They didn't even know who this guy was, really was. They thought, no, when the Messiah comes, he's going to get rid of the Roman Empire. When the Messiah comes, he's going to set up this political regime. When the Messiah comes, he's going to make all of us Jews right again. And we're going to be like the kingdom of David. And we're going to fill the earth. And we're going to have this political dominance. See, they didn't really know what Jesus was about. And Jesus says, you misunderstand really what I'm about. I desire compassion and mercy. Go learn this. Learn this. And when you learn this, know this. I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners. That's why I'm here. See, I'm here to call you today. Is He calling you? Has He called you? If He's called you, guess what? You were a terrible sinner. See, if, if, you've, if you've been this good person all your life and really don't have any needs, then guess what? Jesus has never called you. Never. Because He doesn't call the righteous. You follow me? This morning, I want you to consider this. If you've ever really heard the call of Jesus, the first thing you were aware of is that you were a sinner. And that you needed to repent of your sins. You needed to ask God for forgiveness in Christ. And you needed a new heart. And you needed to put your trust in Him. Because guess what? You can't save yourself. Sinners can't save themselves. Oh, the righteous. See, they're saving themselves. See, the righteous, they're going to stand before God and they're going to say, weigh my merits out, Lord. And you're going to find, Lord, Lord, did we not do these good things in your sight? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do all of these good deeds, tithe and go to church? Depart from me, Jesus said, I never knew you. For your obedience didn't come the way I taught you to obey out of consecrated and crushed hearts. Has Jesus come for you? Have you been corrected this morning? How do you view yourself? Are you the good person? Are you the notorious sinner in this illustration? Do you depend upon your outward religiosity to make yourself right with God? If you are, 
Jesus has nothing to say to you. Do you understand? Jesus has nothing for you. Is your pride in yourself? In your good deeds? That you're not like them? Who's the, who are you in this picture? Two men walk into the temple. And they both going to worship and praise the name of God. One falls down on his knees and won't even look to heaven. And he beats his chest and he says, Oh God, have mercy on me. I am a sinner. The other one looks at the one beating his chest and crying out to God in the pain of sin. And says, God, thank you that I'm not like that person. Which one are you? Which one are you? If you are the latter... Jesus has nothing to say to you. How, pastor? How do I get past this? Well, if you need to hear what Jesus says, the first thing you need to do is acknowledge your sinfulness. Will you do that this morning? Will you acknowledge how sinful you really are? Because that's who Jesus came for. He came for the sick. And he came for the sinful. And if that's you, Jesus has something to say to you. And here's what he says. Come all to me who are weary and heavy laden. Heavy laden with what? Sin. Guilt. There is so, there's a precious message for the prostitute, the fornicator, the vindictive, the hatred, the, the hateful for the pride, the arrogant. There's a gospel message for those who know they are sinful. And Jesus says, come, come. I will give you rest and peace. I don't have time this morning to go through all the commandments and talk about what this external righteousness looks like. But brothers, to encourage you with this, True repentance is to change your mind about sin. Will you agree with God? Are you a sinner? Secondly, faith is to put your trust in Jesus Christ as the only one who is the true physician and can save you and help you. I didn't come for the righteous. Well, I came for the sick. I came for the sinful and, set, and thirdly, to uh, first, repentance. Secondly, faith. Thirdly, to life. You see, brothers and sisters, if we are the sinful who have repent of our sins and put our faith in Jesus Christ, guess what our lives look like? A celebration in Christ. What does Matthew do? What does Matthew do? Does Matthew continue collecting taxes in the toll booth? Does he continue robbing and stealing and taking advantage of his neighbors? He does not. What does he do when Jesus calls Matthew? What does this notorious publican tax collector do? What does he do? He follows Jesus. See, if you've never followed Jesus, that third counterpart or that third part of this, then you've really never repented of your sins and you've never put your faith in Jesus. Because, see, to follow Him is to repent of sin and it is to trust Him. And then it is the life application of following Him. See, guess what? Matthew stopped being a publican. 
And if Jesus has called you, brothers and sisters, and it's a real calling, and it's a real viable Christianity, and this is what Christianity truly is, guess what? I hope you have stopped your endeavor to sin and now walk and follow Jesus Christ. Because He come to heal sinners. Let's pray. Now, Father, do take this message this morning and press it upon our hearts.